Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130AX-91, Rights of Strangers, 8th Commandment, Exodus, X-22, Verses 21-24. Someone who lives ten miles away. 
closer the relationship, the more precise the law in Scripture. The law declares that such people are not to be vexed, that is, in the old-fashioned sense of the term, oppressed, done injustice to, wrong. The word refers to specific, aggressive, and discriminatory acts. The discrimination that is barred is any act not permitted by God's word. It is one of God's making that is permissible, but the discrimination which is of man's making is forbidden. Israel is reminded of its own experience in Egypt, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now this point is important, because this law is one that is very, very often used today in the churches in calls for integration. We are told that here we have the legal precedent in Scripture for mandatory integration. This is a curious usage of this passage because the people who make use of it don't believe in the law to begin with. And they throw the law overboard at every other point except where they find something to beat the people over the head with when they want to preach integration. Now, what is the reference here? Thou shalt not vex the stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. What was their situation in Egypt? As a matter of fact, it was segregation, both in its good and bad period. Thus, when Israel first went into Egypt, for some time thereafter, they lived very happily and prosperously when they were segregated in the land of Goshen. An entire section of the country was set apart for them, not because they were entitled to it, but because here was some land that was not in use, and Pharaoh said, you can move into that area. The reason for giving them that area was precisely because segregation was most desirable for congenial relationships. The Israelites were sheep herders. And we are told that a sheep herder, anyone connected with sheep, was an abomination to the Egyptians. We've had that problem in this country. We had in the West during the last century and lingering well into this century, into the 20s, range wars between sheepmen and cattlemen. They do not get along. There are still hostilities in some areas. And so Pharaoh puts the Israelites, sheepmen, into one area of the country, segregating them. Israel was very happy with that arrangement. This was not the problem of Israel and Egypt. It was that they were enslaved, compulsory, forced labor was required of them. Then
then in order to eliminate them, all their male children were sentenced to death. Thus the evil in Egypt of which the law speaks was not segregation. Their segregation in Goshen was a blessing to them. The evil was oppression. Moreover, precisely because this is law, it is limited. Law is always limited in its jurisdiction. It requires justice, therefore, for a foreigner, not social relations. Thou shalt not vex a stranger nor oppress him. You shall not commit aggressive acts against him, depriving him of justice, nor pass legislation designed to rob him of his rights. It does not call, therefore, for any kind of compulsory integration. It requires justice. The idea of compelling people to associate in spite of their personal feelings was as alien to biblical law as anything could be. Life, then, was family or clan life closely knit. There was a great deal of hospitality towards strangers. You recall Abraham greeting the strangers and feeding them. This kind of hospitality was commonplace. This kind of hospitality, let me add, was commonplace in much of the West for a long time and still is in many of the isolated areas where any stranger is entitled to help when he needs it from any rancher. But this does not mean that this entitles him to have any social relations with him. If you're in trouble in some of our ranching country, it is amazing how much help is forthcoming. Even to emergency housing, to take you in, to feed you, to make sure you get on your way. But it's a serious mistake to assume that the next time you see these people, this entitles you to feel that they are your friends. Help to a person in need is one thing, social relations another. Life was closely knit. Abraham, for all his hospitality to any and every stranger, his rescue of the Canaanites, from the Babylonian captivity that they were subjected to did not mean that he felt that there was any necessity to associate with it. He sent back to Haran for a bride for his son. We are told, moreover, that this law is important and violations of it are very serious in God's sight. The law is placed immediately in Exodus after laws against deduction, against idolatry, and against witchcraft. And George Rawlinson, commenting on this in the last century, wrote, and I quote, The juxtaposition of laws against oppression with three crimes of the deepest dye 
seems intended to indicate that oppression is among the sins which are most hateful in God's sight. The lawgiver, however, does not say that it is to be punished capitally, nor indeed does he affix to it any legal penalty. Instead of so doing, he declares that God himself will punish it with a storm. Three classes of persons particularly liable to be oppressed are selected for mention, strangers, foreigners, widows, and orphans, unquote. The reason why God considers such oppression very serious is because it indicates that to all practical intent there is no law in that country. True law gives protection to all who are law-abiding. Where the weak are unable to get protection because they are weak, no law exists. If the law discriminates against any group, then it is simply class legislation, not law. If the weak are discriminated against because they are weak, or the rich because they are rich, then the law is an instrument of oppression. True law discriminates, but it discriminates against wrongdoers. The reason why no penalties are affixed to this law is because the law already provides penalties for the specific crime. That is, for theft, restitution, for murder, death, and so on. Widows and orphans are also included in this law. Now, it is important as we analyze this law to look again at the title, The Rights of Strangers, Widows, and Orphans. The term rights is very common in our time. Various groups demand that their rights, but in a very real sense, there are no such things as rights. And I've used the word only in order to call attention to the fact that it is improper. The only right any man has is in a common law, God's law, which establishes rights rather than rights, so that whenever and wherever anyone is in the right, then he is in the place, then he has protection. The right of any minority group is precisely in a common law, not in legislation that singles him out for special privileges. The idea of civil rights or minority rights or labor rights or rights of capital means basically special privileges.
and only when you have God's law, not class law, do you have right. Any order, therefore, without justice is an order in which there are no rights because there is no right. Such an order is then subject, according to our scriptures, to the judgment of God. One very leftist scholar in analyzing this law admits a very significant point as he compares it to the Code of Hammurabi. According to Dr. Weiler's dam, and I quote, what is uniquely stressed here is the immediate and dynamic role the God of Israel plays in this concern for and accomplishment of justice. He is directly related to the historical process and has not, like an absentee, entrusted his work to an agent, such as Hammurabi, who can play an independent role, unquote. This is very much to the point. God says, I am the Supreme Court. He declares emphatically, If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath shall wipe off, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fathers. If you take advantage of the unjust, of the helpless, then your loved ones shall be reduced to a similar helplessness. Over and over again, the law makes this point. For example, in Deuteronomy 10, 17, to 19 we read, For the Lord your God is a God of gods, and Lord of lords, the great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widows, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the strangers, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. The rabbi Rashi declared, The blemish which is upon thyself thou shalt not notice in thy neighbor. However, there is an important point in this verse. It does declare that where the courts are lawless, the Supreme Court of Almighty God must be appealed to. And the God declares, I will surely hear their cry. But the point we must remember is that the suffering of afflicted people is not the same as the concern for justice. There are many, many people all over the world today who are suffering. The injustices perpetrated by the various governments of Asia and Africa, as well as of the Western world, are very, very serious. But those who are suffering may be as disinterested in justice as their oppressors. 
and is ready to persecute and oppress if given the opportunity. This is one of the things that caused the abolitionists so much grief in the last century. Incidentally, a great deal of the abolitionist literature is fraudulent. Many, many books were written ostensibly by rescued slaves. These rescued slaves gave the usual horror story, and they breathed a very sanctimonious piety and spoke endlessly of spending long hours on their knees in prayer to the Lord before they were delivered by the Underground Railway and taken into the North. Now, without making any excuse for slaveholders in the South, the fact remains that these documents were largely manufactured in the abolitionist offices in the North. A slave was rescued, the Underground Railway would take him to New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, and he would sit in the office and tell his story in an hour or two to an abolitionist writer, who would then proceed to write a book of four and five hundred pages about this slave's experiences, writing in the first person as though he were the slave. The story would be highly embroidered. It would breathe with sanctimonious piety. It would give a very, very dishonest picture. So when you read these stories, we must remember they were potboilers manufactured in offices. What proved to be an embarrassment for these abolitionists, both in this country and Europe, was the radical lack of justice among so many of the men they freed. In London, one freed Negro complained of his poverty after a period of time as a free man, and the reason why he complained it developed was that he had sold all his relatives back into slavery, and now there was no one left to sell, and he was squirreled. Thus, the afflicted may be as disinterested in justice as their oppressors. And it is easy for us to make serious mistakes here. We've had a serious murder in the Mine Workers' Union of late. It is easy for everyone to assume that the murdered man was the innocent one, and that the Union leaders were the evil one. But is this necessarily true? Yablonsky was involved in every kind of thing with the Union leaders up until about a year ago when suddenly he switched sides and began to attack the Union leader. Why the sudden switch? He had been party to everything that he was accusing the others of. Was his interest in justice or was it in power? 
is on one side does not make the other side necessarily right. And the fact that a union is in the wrong doesn't make the business the party in the right. Thus, what our scripture tells us is that there must be an appeal for justice, an appeal for justice to Almighty God, an appeal not only for deliverance but for justice. Where there is no appeal for justice, there is no interest in justice. In that case, judgment descends when it finally comes on all parties involved. God is the Supreme Court declares his concern for justice. And this justice is meted out with an even hand. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for thy sovereign word. And we thank thee, our Father, that thy word is mindful of us in our every condition and in our every relation. Make us ever mindful as we complain about the problems of this world, that we are not without guilt. Unless our cry is for justice, and unless we appeal to, from the courts of men to thy court, O Lord, give us therefore ever a zeal for justice, and make us ever petitioners of thy supreme court. Grant us this spirit we beseech thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now with respect to our lesson, first of all? Yes. Yes. The Japanese were very, very unjustly interned. It was the epitome of injustice. The demand for it came from the Salinas area where a number of very powerful Democrats who were in the vegetable business, especially the lettuce business, wanted to eliminate their Japanese competitors. And so they appealed to Washington, and FDR went along with them. It is significant that there was no internment of the Japanese in Hawaii, which militarily was far, far more important. Moreover, within a matter of an hour or two after Pearl Harbor, every Japanese agent in this country had been picked up by the FDR. They had broken 
Japanese code, this is why, as was pointed out, they knew that Pearl Harbor was going to take place and invited it. But they also knew who all the agents were. They not only knew that, but they knew the background and histories of every Japanese who might be a student or a visitor in this country. For example, at the time of Pearl Harbor, I knew an Episcopalian clergyman, Japanese, who was doing graduate work in this country. He had been in the Imperial Air Force some years earlier, had served, had gotten his discharge, had been subsequently converted, had come here and had studied. He was among those who had been picked up. Of course, he was released almost immediately. They simply wanted to check on him. But what this man stated was very interesting. They knew more about him than he could remember about himself. They had so complete a file on his past history, details of his military service, every kind of association, many had studied under, so that, uh, as he said, he was reminded of a lot of things he'd forgotten when they went through his file. They knew all they needed to know and had the situation well in hand. The internment of the Japanese was purely political, and it was unjust. Many of them lost permanently. They never recouped their fortunes. Yes. The Israelites went to Egypt because of famine conditions that prevailed in Canaan. And they had a cordial reception in Egypt because Joseph was there as Prime Minister of Egypt, Joseph the son of Jacob. The latter part of the book of Genesis gives us this very moving and dramatic story.
Many foreign powers were more or less running the country and taking advantage of the Chinese. When the Boxer Rebellion ended, the United States intervened with the power. We too had suffered. Many Americans and American missionaries had lost their lives there. But we intervened to prevent any exploitation of China or any carving up of China by the great power. We stipulated that there had to be reparations for the damages done. The restitution that had to be made, and that's exactly what we require in biblical fashion. The restitution that was made to the U.S. government, we then took and set up as special funds for scholarships for the Chinese to carry on all kinds of work in China for the welfare of the Chinese, and in every way made our influence as high all over the world with a strict sense of justice and the kindliness we showed so that the United States came out, uh, well, the world was amazed that even in a situation where we had been hurt badly, we showed such Christian forbearance as well as justice. The sad fact is that we exploited the power we gained by our past since World War I to interfere now in foreign affairs. We went into Korea with mixed motives very clearly. Our interference in Korea was very, very unhappy. First, we invited the invasion of South Korea after having unjustly surrendered North Korea to the Communists. We have consistently interfered there. We have not really been interested in fighting communism in South Vietnam. If we had, we would have worked to overthrow the Communists very clearly there and here. So, Right now, our reputation is very poor all over the world because whereas once we took a part in foreign affairs in the interest of justice, now it is to play politics in terms of an American foreign policy which is seriously destructive. Yes.
time is just about over, I'd like to remind you of the notices on the lectern in the back. Please pick one up and read it. This is concerning our Get Acquainted Dinner on Saturday, March 7th, 1970, 6 p.m. at the Encino Women's Club. Please read it carefully and then let Edith Stafford and Peggy North know of your plans to come so that we know in advance how many we shall have. We're looking forward to having you there and having a good opportunity for a social hour as well as a little program, apparently, that the women are planning. Yes. Thank you. 
the baby's diapers and the warrant did not specify any right to search or seize the baby. In other words, the rest is becoming impossible. This is what happens under humanistic law. Well, our time is up. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules. dot com.